Hello and welcome to the Food Fight podcast. I'm Matt Eastland. And I'm Lakshmi Balthasan. So Matt and I are both from EIT Food, which is Europe's leading food innovation initiative. We're working to make the food system more sustainable, healthy and trusted. So over the course of the series, we're inviting guests from all areas of food industry to talk to us about how we can tackle some of the world's biggest food challenges and fight for a better food future. So in our episode today, we're discussing a really hot topic at the moment, alternative protein. And why are we discussing this? Well, there are three main reasons. So really quickly, vegetarianism and veganism are on the rise. Traditional meat farming is under fire following studies on how intensive farming is affecting the environment. And the world population is growing and current farming methods are struggling to keep up the demand. So whether you like a juicy steak or not, it's inevitable that alternative proteins are going to be appearing more and more on your menus. So what's the beef with alternative protein? So to discuss this topic, we have two guests with us today who are experts in this space. So we have Jim Laird, who's the CEO and founder of 3F Bio. 3F Bio is a biotech company that produces sustainable protein. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Food Fight. Hi, guys. And Roberta Eiley, who's a principal change designer at Forum of the Future. So Forum of the Future is a sustainability nonprofit organization, and they specialize in addressing critical global challenges by catalyzing change. Roberta is specifically involved in a forum initiative called the Protein Challenge 2040. Roberta, welcome to the Food Fight. Thank you. Hi. Hi to you both. So to set the scene then, why don't we just unpack the reasons why we're having this conversation in the first place? So firstly... What do we mean when we say alternative protein and why are we talking about this now? Uh, Roberta, maybe you could start. Oh, gosh, I wish there was a written definition for this. <laughs> well, I suppose there's two takes on alternative protein. One is that you're looking really at kind of the novel ideas coming out in this space. So there's lots of interest in things like microorganisms, you know, extracting protein from yellow split peas, all sorts of interesting processes and, and opportunities for new protein sources. Um, I like sometimes to take a bit of a broader definition because I think sometimes what we're really talking about are alternatives that are more sustainable than some of the current and, and I think there are actually lots of proteins that we aren't actually particularly novel to people's cuisines around the world, um, but could provide a really important protein source going forward. So I like to think of it as alternatives to the status quo rather than always being kind of novel and, you know, exciting. OK, Jim, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good definition. For me, we are alternatives to the animal. Right now, the only protein that is scaled for the, the, since the dawn of time has been the animal. The animal still accounts for... 95% plus of our protein sources. And mm -hmm. so for me, anything outside of the animals, so outside of meat and fish, is the alternatives. And it captures plants, it captures fungi, and it captures emerging technologies of insects, cultured meat. Um, so a fairly broad landscape. Okay, so why are we talking about this now? Why is alternative protein such a hot topic? Does it mean that the way that we're currently farming is unsustainable, do you think, Jim? I think undoubtedly. I think the, the, the facts portray tell us that we're using vast portions of our land, our water, the 80% of antibiotic use is from in, industrial farming. So sustainability of conventional farming, I don't think that's an exam question anymore. I think the call to action for change, that's clear, that's clear and evident. Back to your question, why are we talking about it now? And I think it's more, there's a tipping point and that's coming from consumers. Mm -hmm. it's consumers are changing. So We'll maybe come on to it, but consumers are, are at an individual level are what's initiating change. Um, 
And I guess a follow-on question from that, I mean, I'm really interested in this topic as well. So should we just stop eating so much protein? Because I'm always getting, I mean, I'm basically pretty much vegetarian these days, and I'm always getting told, you know, you're not getting enough protein in your diet. Should we be reducing the amount of protein we eat? Is that a possible solution to this, Roberta? Absolutely. I think for Western diets where... And clearly, this is different amongst different demographics and different places. Um, but we're typically eating perhaps 25% more protein on average than we need to. Right. Um, there's a lot of nutritional debate about this, so I wouldn't call it a closed case. But I think there is a good argument for all of us to look at what we're consuming across the board, um, but protein specifically and reducing that as well. So, I mean, you were, you mentioned we're eating 25% more. So if we all, I mean, that's some that's interesting. That's something that we don't really usually hear about in space. So if we just consumed less protein, then is there a need for alternative protein? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot that can be done by reducing our consumption and by reducing the waste. I mean, we know in meat, for example, there's a huge amount of waste, which we could be looking at quite closely. But I don't think that solves the entire problem. We need a system fundamentally in the future that provides us with the protein that we need in a sustainable, healthy way. And at the moment, that's just not there yet. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, protein is a good thing. Good consumption of protein correlates with good health outcomes, good nutrition outcomes. So are we all eating too much protein? I think we're all eating too much. And so mm, we're eating too yeah. many calories, but actually we need protein, we need fiber. And, and I think protein and fiber within the diet is a good guy. Um, so I don't. Th I think eating too much is, a, is maybe a broader issue and, it, and it's okay. possibly part of a different, a different topic. Um, should we eat less protein? Well, I think, will we eat less protein? Probably not. I think we are being communicated to that protein correlates with uh, positive health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And on that basis... Generally speaking, we'll continue to see fairly high level levels in Western and evolved markets. But I think there's a genuine gap elsewhere where there is protein deficiency. And that's, yeah, that needs to be addressed as well. Okay. So, Roberta, now that we've sort of unpacked this topic a little bit, um, let's go and hear a little bit more about the Protein Challenge 2040. So can you explain mm. a little bit more about what this is? Absolutely. So this was a collaboration that was set up actually four years ago now, I'm counting. Um, and the idea was to bring together businesses and NGOs around this issue. Mm -hmm. And it actually wasn't initiated by Forum. It really came from industry. So some of the partners that Forum for the Future work with um, really started to recognize that protein was a kind of big upcoming issue. And that was kind of pretty um, pioneering at the time. Because although we talk about protein now as though it's part of our common language, um, it really wasn't a few years ago. And that's been a big shift that we've seen in the last few years. Um, so right out at the outset of the, the collaboration was really to put it on the radar. So we tried to get companies operating across the sector, right from meat producers, feed companies, through to retail consumer brands, and of course, some of the innovative startups operating in this space. But really, first and foremost, to put protein on the map and now to catalyze action, particularly by piloting new approaches and helping people to look at these issues more systemically. Wow, amazing. I love that. And Jim, is is this kind of big seismic change and the need to get protein on the agenda? Is this the reason that you got into the alternative protein business in the first place? If I'm honest, I don't think so. I think uh, my background is I'm 25, 30 years in food um, and with covering a range of areas, including running the, the, the world's biggest meat-free brand for a period of time. Um, right. 
so I know the market and I know the, the landscape. I think what excited me was when we saw the, our technology for the first time and started to think, can it be a genuine solution? It sparked an interest, and that's what got me into it. Um, I wouldn't say it was a, a, the light bulb was on a, at a 100 watts from second one. It took, it took some time to work out whether what we had was a genuine solution for where there was a big market need. Um, but actually, once I started to see that, and, and what we, we do is we make microproteins, we make protein from fungi or from small organisms. Mm-hmm. And once I started to see that its resource efficiency was compelling and attractive relative to the competitive landscape, that's where it started to excite me. And, and, and that's what got me hooked properly, such that we have moved on in a couple of years to a stage where we're we're becoming tangible and more real. And I think I genuinely believe that making protein from smaller organisms does create that future of food um, or future of sustainable protein. Okay, great. And you're producing something called Abunda Mycoprotein. So can you explain for the listeners exactly what that is, where they would see it, those sorts of things? Abunda is a trademark. Mycoprotein is a Greek word for uh, myco for fungi and protein. Um, So it's protein made with small organisms. To explain how we do that. It sounds sciencey. Um, in reality, we take the sugars out of grains such as wheat and maize mm-hmm. and we ferment it. So large-scale fermentation, large-scale fermentation tanks, similar way that you'd see large-scale brewing tanks or the way large-scale vats making yogurt. We convert the sugars using fungi into protein in a, in a single-step fermentation. So, you know, it's growing food with grain or a single-stage fermentation. Um, and what we make is a whole biomass, a whole food which contains protein and fibre which is then very versatile, versatile for a range of category applications and product applications. So is it something that other businesses are using to produce different kinds of food, or is this something that you're selling straight into the consumer? So the stage we're at, we produce at pilot scale. We've sampled our product with a range of bigger food companies, but we won't have industrial scale or commercial scale capacity for another 18, maybe 24 months. Um, So... In terms of where has microprotein been seen in the world? Well, I think Roberta was talking about the range of protein sources, alternative protein sources, and outside of the animal, then in that meat-free space or meat-alternative space for the last three or four decades, there's there's been a a range of choices. Soya has led the way, and Soya's done a a good job at making delicious food that doesn't contain animal. More recently, other types of plant have come in. Pea, legumes are hitting that wave as well. And microprotein or fungi has been there as well for 30, 40 years and is the ingredient in that in the global brand leader in that meat-free space. Right. So it's long established, but we are not supplying that at this stage. Okay, thank you. That's clear. You've said the word delicious. So I guess when it comes to consumer, you know, taste, texture is utmost important when they're making their choices. So what are some considerations that you or a startup similar to you need to, to take into place to operate in this field? I think delicious does come first for in food or delicious and acceptability. And I think generally for the food industry has always championed that. And, you know, within the protein choices and meat and fish are part of those protein choices, they have for some consumers given deliciousness and they tick lots of boxes for lots of consumers. Um, I guess for an increasing size of the consumer base, meat and livestock isn't the acceptable choice for your deliciousness. So what the plant space has to do is try and give the consumer what it loves. And that will include succulents, texture, lack of aftertaste. Um, and those are things which everything that is competing with the animal has to deliver against. So succulents, te- I think texture probably comes back as 
almost top of the list when you talk mm. to consumers. Mm. If you get the texture wrong, then texture is part of taste. Um, if you get the texture wrong, then you've lost the, the consumer. The, you've lost the consumer. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the the amount of innovation that's happened even over the last 18 months on this is huge. But I also think it's come at a time when consumers are, well, frankly, quite conscious about their health apart from anything else. And this is meeting a need with, for consumers that are really trying to understand how they can eat better in every sense. Uh, so I think, you know, it's part of that, but it's come at the right time as well. You know, we have had some of those products, like um, Jim said, for, for 30 years. So some of this really isn't new. But, there, you know, all credit, there has been some significant improvement in things like texture as well. OK, so I'd like to pick up on a couple of things you said there. So you're talking about sustainability and health. So I guess first question that jumps to mind is, are all alternative proteins a sustainable alternative to meat-based like uh, products and if so do you think that alternative proteins should replace meat entirely roberta what do you think controversial okay (laughs) (laughs) that's what we're here for yeah so i definitely see a huge role for alternative protein i think that that's without a doubt we know that many of the alternative proteins on the market are driving interesting innovations that let's say, question some of the underlying ways that we've grown food in the past. Mm. So they're starting to disassociate land use from food, (laughs) for example. They're starting to show that we can use waste products and and bring them full circle back into our food supply chains. And in the case of some of the products we're talking about here as well, they're showing the value of microorganisms. We're so used to to cows and sheep and all, all the big stuff, if you like, but really showing the value that microorganisms can bring to our food system as well. So I think in that sense, they're helping us to really rethink food. Mm-hmm. But I also, you know, we always talk about balance in this context. We know that a large proportion of the world's population's livelihoods rely on the current food system. Mm. And we know that for many people around the world, currently there really isn't a choice, you know, and that many of the livestock options, for example, provide really valuable opportunities for people to get their protein nutrition, which is very difficult to see how that could change in the near term. I also think it's important to say, you know, we do know that many of the livestock products and fish products do bring valuable nutrition into our diets. Mm. So there's quite an interesting question for me, which we're increasingly exploring as part of the challenge of kind of, you know, how do we make sure that we we hit that right balance and that the alternative proteins that are coming onto the market are really delivering on the sustainability and the health side of things. I think it's easy sometimes to look at something and feel like it's novel and exciting. Mm. Um, but we also need to just challenge ourselves sometimes to, to make sure we are really making the leaps forward that we hope we are. Um, so a good example is where we've got microorganisms, for example, making sure that what we're feeding them, <laughs> you know, is coming from a sustainable source that we can really justify where this is coming from. And I think consumers will really be looking for that to some degree. We were saying, you know, consumers are really interested in the health side of this. And, you know, there is a question for some of the products coming onto the market now, whether that, those are really delivering against those health perceptions. So I think there's a risk if we don't keep looking at that and keep innovating um, that that we may lose consumers along the way. That's really fascinating. Thank you. And, and again, you come back to that health issue. So, you know, we've, I think probably a lot of people out, who, out there who've listened to this or are listening to this have heard about the Impossible Burger. So that's now being stocked in Burger King. So that's gone mainstream. So that's a, a vegan patty which is developed in the Bay Area of the US and which is claiming to be better for humans on the earth than a beef burger. 
But if you'll allow me just a second, so there's a, a recent Guardian article that just had this paragraph that's jumped out at us, and I'm just going to read it straight out. So it says that some believe we should be sceptical of these claims. The original formulation had no cholesterol but more salt and saturated fat than a Five Guys beef patty. As for its environmental footprint, many have criticised the push to eat more soy, which the Impossible Burger contains since it's soil-depleting monocrop. It's also not organic. So from a consumer perspective, this is really complicated. Um, and how is a consumer meant to understand what are the best choices for them to make from both this kind of health and sustainability angle? You know, how, Jim, how do we unpick it for a consumer or as a consumer? Well, I think, I think your three topics, health, taste environment um, for the consumer there's some choices within there so to the question of environment are plant-based alternatives more sustainable than, than than livestock and I think the answer to that question is very simply yes mm -hmm. in terms of water usage land use carbon emissions they do they emit less um, is there a space for meat and your second part of your question was will it replace meat entirely mm -hmm. and, I, and in many ways I hope not I think okay. I hope not I think but I do think that meat might become the alternative I think the the balance of nutrition and calories and feeding the globe I think probably is not in the long term coming from the animal but does it take it off the menu entirely I think not um, right. personal viewpoint um, how does the consumer balance those things of environment, taste and health. Um, as with everything in food, there's different brand positionings um, that will capture some of that space. Um, and Matt, your, your physique says you champion the health environment. Um, <laughs> you, flattery brother, will get you everywhere. <laughs> brothers out there, there is, is indulgence and taste which might come first. And actually, if we are too virtuous with our meat-free offerings, then it's not going to meet consumer desire in the masses. Um, mm -hmm. I think what the Beyond Burger and Possible Burger will do is changing what we eat, not the way we eat. So okay. I think that whole, the amount of brand investment dollars will be required to get us to fundamentally change our lifestyles and our plates, I think we would be here for a long time. So okay. I think getting consumers to switch away from going to Burger King or choosing what they like to eat isn't going to happen radically. I think some parts of the top of the pyramid will do, but I think the masses will want to eat their everyday favourites that they can enjoy and trust. And that might be fish and chips, spaghetti bolognese, um, a burger and chips, whatever it may be. And I think the role of the food industry is to put more sustainable protein sources into those everyday favourites. I think it, to me, it's one of those things that's a bridge. I guess we hope it's, it's the entry point for many people, like you say, whose lifestyles aren't going to change overnight in terms of what they eat. But it... I guess the hope is it provides a bridge into a different way of eating going forward. Um, I guess I would like to definitely sort of address a bit of a myth, though, around the soy piece, which mm. I think is important. Um, we know that, and this is where you should check your stats, but it's around, let's say, 80% of soy, something in that region, 70 to 80% of soy, and it's specifically the soy meal, goes into animal feed specifically. So a lot of the demand driving soy is coming from the livestock side of things. Right. And as a consumer eating soy directly, you're playing a very small part in, in those land use changes. That's not to say it's insignificant. That's not to say we shouldn't be looking quite carefully at how we produce soy on the ground, the monoculture, you know, all of those aspects. Um, but I think you can also rest easy that eating soy products directly as a human is not a bad way to go. 
Okay. Yeah. That's, no, no, that's really good to that's know. That's really good to know. Yeah. So it has been playing my mind actually. So thank you for that. Um, and in talking about like consumers and you know how they embrace alternative proteins if if we need to going forward to feed the planet, so how do we do that? So is it about consumer education? How you know how do we get consumers to really trust alternative proteins? I'll start. Um, I think consumers have got really passionate and strong views about all sorts of protein. So and for some that comes to, I love meat or we were brought up being educated about the virtues of milk. So we're, we're educated about the virtues of protein. Um, and I guess but it's switching. And then so we look at the broad protein landscape. All proteins have got some pros and cons. And pros and cons in terms of their deliciousness, their tastiness, their environmental impact. Um, so they've all got pros and they've got some baggage in terms of cost and where they're sourced from and how it impacts environment. Um, I think for some people, the idea of some of the new proteins, such as eating insects, is disgusting. But I guess there's an equal proportion for whom the idea of eating that meat from the animal is equally disgusting. Mm. So talking about consumers as a big group is maybe simplifying it. And, and we've got a, a shifting demographic and a shifting consumer base that is, that is probably provoking this conversation at a macro level. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we do it? I think we, we do it at, at a micro level. We do it by giving choices. And, and as Roberta says, the number of products coming on the fixture in the supermarkets is proliferating. And, we'll put, and there'll be bad products going in the fixture, bad plant-based products, things which don't sate everyone's desires, but it's still part of the journey and therefore is driving that change. Um, okay. And, and Roberta, do you agree? I mean, do you think that consumers are embracing alternative proteins? What, what else can we do? I think a proportion are, for sure. But... Um, that question is, how do we make this mainstream? And we, as, a, as the Protein Challenge, don't work with consumers directly. Um, but I think some of the things we've seen coming through in our research are things like um, the concerns that parents have about the nutritional quality um, for children, particularly in the early days. Mm. Um, also associations around things like masculinity. And, you know, and there's been some quite interesting work around that in terms of um, misbusting with kind of um, personal trainers, vegan personal trainers and things like that. And I think also, you know, people have really strong associations around protein and sort of celebration. And there's something quite interesting there about, you know, how how do we make um, alternative proteins equally part of celebration food? Mm -hmm. I think there's a danger when we still see certain products, meat, for example, always as the luxury in our lives. Mm -hmm. And there's something about how we kind of shift that to a better balance. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have to admit, you know, when it comes to Christmas meal, I, I do tend to look a little bit longingly at the <laughs> turkey that everyone else is tucking into, and I have something else. So, yeah. Three types of potato. Yeah, that's true. I do tend to go for that. So, yeah. Um, so as part of the podcast series, we've asked people across our social media and our networks for questions to pose to you on alternative protein. So I'm going to kick off with some terminology. So if meat comes from plants or animal cells, is it still meat at all? Because I have an opinion on the term meat. I think it's what consumers understand. I taste the perfect day's ice cream and it's delicious. And it says on the back, it's non-animal whey protein. Um uh, and you're thinking, okay, is that, uh, am I understanding that as a consumer? Or, so do we get to non-animal meat in the same way? Um, and in many ways, I think if it helps me as a consumer understand it, that'll do for me. Um, and if I have to switch away to calling my burgers discs or my sausages links, then again, I'm not sure the shopper is going to go there. Uh, mm. 
What what do you think? I know this has been quite controversial in the the U.S. and has been lobbying to get milk, non plant based milk, no longer called milk. And yeah, that's meat. right. Meat, but you can say you can spell meat, but it has to be M E E T and stuff like that. So yeah, it all gets kind of strange, really. What do you think, Roberta? I'm not sure. I have a like specific view on this. To be honest, I think like. Jim said, you know, there's a value in meeting the consumer with where they're at. I guess there's also a value in understanding that like every type of protein, you know, again, as you said, has different characteristics, it has different tastes, it has different nutrition, you know, and there is some value in making sure that you can distinguish to some degree what you're eating. Um, so I, jury's out. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so another question then. So consumers have, uh, people like us, I guess, they've just asked, you know, how do we shop for alternative proteins, um, you know, how do I integrate this into my everyday diet? Or is this just happening anyway? What do you think, Jim? I come back to change what you eat, not the way we eat. So if the plant-based solutions have to give you things that you can cook with and you understand, mm. and that goes on the table and is not a compromising choice. So it has to taste as good and probably cost not more than the meat alternative. Um, I think we could aspire to the fact we're all eating or feeding ourselves from our own farm kitchen and or guard, farm garden and we're growing our own. But I don't think it happens. It doesn't happen for the the macro scale. So um, Okay. And do you think uh, like uh, TV celebrity chefs and restaurants uh, play a role here? Do they, do they need to be pushing alternative proteins harder? All sorts of influencers impact us. Um, mm -hmm. I think who are the influencers, whether it's, it will come to the chefs, but Greta Thunberg's an influencer. I think there's something today of Lewis Hamilton making a huge noise about his veganism and mm -hmm. maybe getting a bit of a backlash for it. But um, I think he, it's about normalising what we do. And the normalisation comes from the fact that celebrities and influencers say it's okay. And then the help through celebrity chefs or through chef world, through back of packs and labels, in the same way as the food industry has for decades. How do I make this delicious? How do I feed my family? How do I, or why Why am I going to be happy at the end of that meal? Um, okay. And what do you think, Roberta? Any tips and tricks for consumers out there about how they get more of alternative, good quality alternative proteins into their diet? I think for me, there's part of kind of embracing the other movement that's going on here, which is us eating much wider kind of world cuisines, at least in, in some parts of the world. And, you know, I would really encourage people to to go to cuisines that use um, these plant-based and alternative proteins as a natural part of their diet. There's some great Indian dals and all sorts mm. um, that I think many consumers are starting to really incorporate into their diets. It is a step, you know, I definitely resort to, you know, frozen micro-protein options on a regular <laughs> basis as well. But, you know, I think there's something about enjoying and experimenting with this a bit as well. So I would encourage consumers to look in that direction. I, I agree with Jim. There's also a real role for influencers here. And I think the more that we can help all build our skills with this, because unfortunately, if you cook a lentil, for example, it can be a really, really boring meal if you don't know how to do it properly. And I think so there's something here about, you know, just cluing up a little bit on making sure that you, you know, you put the right seasonings in and things like that. Love that. So, you know, you both talked a lot about the push coming from consumers. 
is there anything more outside of consumers? Should governments be doing more? Is this really the responsibility? Every, every, everyone should yeah. do more. You know, with the call to act, the crises and call to action is in two fronts. So it's on genuine protein deficiency in certain parts of the world, and then it's on responding to the environmental impact of overconsumption of the animal. Um, so the call to action is vast, and are, is anyone doing enough? I think no. Uh, sorry, it's that piece of should government do more? Um, I think Denmark has showed signs that they might do something, but genuinely speaking, I don't think a government has radically influenced this conversation. Um, and it's it's a maybe a vote loser. Um, mm. So is, should government do more? Should NGOs do more? Yeah, uh, is Forum for the Future pioneering the way? And they are, and and exact, and that's what's required. But it's that call to action and EITs waving the flag, but. Uh, there's impact required on so many levels um, because the timescale is uh, and the call to action. It doesn't have the time to wait for the culture to meet the cultivator meet 10 to 20 mm. year horizon. There is something which is required now. I'm really keen on seeing um, what food businesses, food brands, retailers and others can do in this space. I think it's one thing to put a alternative protein product onto the shelf. I think it's an entirely different thing to help be part of kind of shifting this sustainable protein movement. And I think that's partly about, it's partly simple things about how you put it on the shelves with what other products, what kind of labeling, all of that kind of thing counts. But I also think there's a broader systems piece here. You know, we're interested in trialing, for example, work on chefs curriculums, because we recognized early on that actually mainstream chefs training at the moment simply doesn't include the kinds of skills that are conducive to pr producing tasty meals mm. that are based yeah. on plant protein and others. And those curriculums haven't changed for about 20 years, so it's about right, right time now to shake things up a bit. And so we're looking to companies to say, well, you know, if you're not getting the skills through from chefs that you need to create the products that you want to put onto the shelves, onto the canteens and so on, how can you be part of shifting some of those systemic pieces behind the scenes as well? So I think as part of that, I think there's some interesting things as well here about the just transition. You know, I think we know that so many people's livelihoods are reliant on traditional sources of plant protein. Mm. And as we discussed, we know that that's not totally out of the picture, that there's a really valuable role as well here um, for, for livestock and dairy and so on. But... Um, we know that it's going to shift significantly. So there's also a, a clear role here for businesses, for governments, for, for others, funders, to start looking at, right, how do we support a transition that enables everyone to benefit from a new sustainable protein system? And sort of part of that change now and a big focus for IT food is supporting startups in this, which you are and which you are, Jim, at 3 yeah. Bio. Thank you. So any top tips for startups jumping on board on the alternative protein sector? And, you know, what's really helped you, um, you know, do so well in this I, I think in this space, the the luxury for startups is something you can be passionate about. And being purpose-led, having something you can get genuinely passionate about lets you build a fantastic team. Um, I think the, the tip is the size of this market is vast. There is no singular solution, which is the utopian solution. And therefore, collaboration is is what's required. And I think EIT ha enables that collaboration between between startups and, and big corporates. Um, so the, for me, the, the tip for startups is embrace that collaboration. Talk to everybody you can talk to. And I, I think, is this a real competitive landscape? It will become so. But right now, this is not, there is not a case of pea beets, microprotein, or where does soya fit? There is space for 
the palate. We all want rich diversity in our, in our plate. And therefore, collaboration is sensible. Within collaboration with the EIT network, looking at the funding options, um, and there's a, with a range of funding options, but funding options that can drive you to impact and scale. Because I think the real call to action for us all is getting to scale. Um, hmm. Wise words from Jim there. So, guys, we're, we're really nearly out of time. But before you go, I wanted to ask you one of these kind of out there questions. So, if you could rip up the food industry and start again, what would be the first changes you'd make to redress the balance in the protein chain? Silence in the studio. <laughs> so you give the big exam question at the end, Matt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we press control. You know, if, you, if you want the real disruption, I think we have to have... It's brands and retailers play a certain role. If you want big disruption, then where we see it is coming from some policy and regulatory impact. Um, and in terms of everything we've seen with tobacco industry uh, and, and its impact or excess sugar and its impact on health and nutrition and the diet and the economy, it's been changed and impacted by disruption from government and, and, and policy. And I think that's, if I was to rip it up, I'm, I'm not... I'm not doing the, uh, the anarchist rip-up. But I think if you want genuine disruption and we want to mitigate against where you started off with the environmental and the health impacts, mm. then I think we need policy intervention. I think, so for me, I wonder whether this comes down to something like along the lines of true cost that people talk about. You know, I'd love to have seen a system that was set up from the beginning where we saw the you know, the true cost to some degree of producing food was recognised in our economy. So that would show up pretty quickly that some of our sources of protein that we now use and now rely on have a very high true cost to the environment. And they have been heavily subsidised to date. Mm. And this is not about making food totally unaffordable for people, but it is about recognising the relative differences in the true costs of, of different types of food. And I think if we'd started with, you know, ideally, if we'd started with that kind of mindset and understanding from the beginning, the sources of protein we'd have relied on would have looked very different right from the start. And I think farmers are fundamental to what we do. And actually, I think the farmers, celebrating mm. the farmer, whether it is maybe something which I didn't probably pull out on that last question, because I think we only make food thanks to the farmers. And yeah. whether it be making livestock or whether it be making primary grains, mm. we are reliant on them and working collaboratively. We, I think we have to, the farmer should in no way be the demon in this, in this yeah. story. Um, exactly. And I think recognising their role in as land managers, as mm. guardians of, you know, so much of our planet um, that, you know, we know those transitions need to happen, but I think we should be putting them very much at the centre of some of those solutions rather than at the edge. What a lovely way to finish. Thanks very much, Roberta. Um, so we're ended the show, guys. So I guess we just need to ask, where can people find out more about your work, Roberta? Uh, go to Forum for the Future's website on the protein challenge lots of information there and I'd love people to get in touch if they're interested thank you and Jim and thank you and it's been a pleasure to be here and go to, similarly go to 3fbio.com and there's a contact us and we'd love to talk to you all brilliant Great stuff well thank you both for uh, being here with us today on the podcast and this has been The Food Fight thank you both thanks, thanks very much thank you